Hi, once again, everybody. I welcome the saints, the brothers and sisters of the Lord, and I also welcome anyone else who is listening, whether seeking for salvation and forgiveness of sins, or they're wondering what this is all about, or they're seeking the truth of God, or they're just here for whatever reason. I'm glad that you're here, because I endeavor, and I'm sure the Lord does too, because he leads me to these things. I, I pray that everything is for the believer, but as well has something for the unbeliever. They're equally important, and that's the aim of this podcast. I want to share with you that this week, actually a couple of weeks ago, I'm just getting now able to now record it and post it. The Lord always leads me and guides me, usually through his word. This time... He led me to uh, a printed or an online sermon um, that also had um, an audio version to it. And I listened once and read it twice. And then I sought the Lord for my life, why he was speaking this to me. And as usual, I want to share it with you because it's, it's for all of us. You know, somehow, sometimes, without <clears throat> obviously thinking of it, I believe because I've caught myself doing this in retrospect, I think that we somehow think the words of the truth and the words of the Bible and the words of Jesus and the words of Almighty God are just for the believer. But you know that's wrong. Um, they are for us as believers, as born-again Christians, because we're the ones that follow it. We're the ones that believe in it. We're the ones who are dedicated to it. But <clears throat> God's word is for everyone because he wants everyone to be like he's called us to. We are saved by grace. Others will be saved by grace. There's no other way to be saved. So please pay attention wherever you fall in that spectrum of listeners. <clears throat> now, I'm not <clears throat> advocating necessarily this church, which I've never heard for, from about before, or the pastor. I'm just mentioning it because you might want to follow up and read it or listen to it yourself. And the Lord spoke through him, and he did, deserves to get credit for it. Um, the church is called Grace Church in DuPage, which is spelled D-U-P-A-G-E, Illinois. And the scripture it's based on is Philippians 2, 14 through 18. I needed to hear this at least once more and I have and I probably will again and I can tell in my life I can tell in my heart is something that I'm aware of but only superficially I guess you could say and the spirit wants to do a work in me and by that I mean it's going to take more than just an instantaneous change, you know, the twinkling of an eye kind of thing. It's going to be a season of working in me to take something that I don't currently have in me as a Christian, at least not much of, and I need to grow in it, I need to mature in it, I need to perfect it. So that's why it's going to take a while, it's going to be a work. And I feel that it's going to be a season, as I said, and a necessary one. And I think, personally, because of that, it's going to be a milestone in my sanctification process, and I hope for you, too. And I encourage you to listen to his sermon and to read it. The website is www.gracedupage.org. And it was posted on February 25th, 2018, and it's titled, Do All Things 
without grumbling or disputing. So I hope with all those little pieces of information that you'll be able to get to it. But, and as, as I said, I'm not promoting this church or the pastor for any other reason <clears throat> than it is the means and the catalyst by which the Father is using to get my attention and my need for it to keep my attention. Additionally, and no small thing for me, is the fact that verse 15 mentions the word blemish. And that gets my attention because any of you that have maybe read the blog or listened to the podcast before or regularly, you know that God's done the work in me and put a burden on my heart and to share it with other people. In fact, you could probably say, if you wanted to call this a ministry, you'd probably say that is the cornerstone or the crux of the ministry. It's all about holiness for the individual believer and for the corporate church. There are many places in the Bible where God talks about cleansing us, washing us, keeping us clean, um, being holy as he is holy, being unstained from the rest of the world. So in verse 15, you can understand why the word blemish got my attention, because my whole, quote-unquote, if you want to call it ministry, is based on this. It's a word that the Lord has used before, and he keeps on using it in his ongoing message to me and to you, his church, about the need for personal and corporate holiness. If you've read the blog, like I said, or the, listened to the podcast for very long, you know that that's a persistent theme and thread and message that he began to sow in me back in 2014, and he hasn't stopped doing it. It hasn't ceased, it hasn't decreased at all, just the opposite. It is to be proclaimed and intentionally practiced all the more as we see the day of Jesus' return approaching. So for that word, blemish alone this is just jump off the page for me and grab me by the shoulders and look me lovingly but seriously straight in the eye and said pay attention now, I will and I earnestly hope you will too I'm sure you'd agree that in order to be obedient to a command from Jesus through the heart mind and pen of Paul to either do or not to do something we need to establish that what the key words in that command mean are actually what we think they mean. To say it more accurately or better, we're not to rely on our own understanding of the vocabulary. And it's a good thing that's where the Lord me, led me because my understanding of the words grumbling and disputing and some say complaining didn't align all that well with what the Greek words in the New Testament are saying. In fact, the definitions are pretty illuminating. First of all, the word for grumbling in the Greek is gongusmon. Its first synonym is murmuring. So, okay, I think that's what I understood it to mean, but Thayer's Greek lexicon says it applies to a secret debate. That's interesting. That caught my attention. So I immediately pictured two people talking because you need two or more people to debate an issue, right? Wrong, apparently. Its accompanying definition says this, secret displeasure not openly avowed. 
Now, things that are in secret, especially scripturally, mean within one's own heart. So it's telling and even revealing to us that to grumble here means to think to ourselves. We may not openly speak of it or act on it, but inwardly, this is what's going on. And don't we always have more going on on the inside than we do on the outside? Or at least that we let on on the outside? Now there tends to be a filter in there somewhere, but Christ Jesus told us what is in the heart matters. For example, and straight from the Bible, the word of truth tells us in 1 Samuel 16, 7, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And again, in the New Testament, and these are just two examples of many more, Matthew 5, 27 and 28 goes beyond what is external or even superficial. It goes right to the heart. The word says, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is always taking it to the next level. He's saying, you've been used to this, and I'm telling you to do this. He's not lowering the bar, he's raising the bar. Holiness is, God, God has a standard, and it's never to be lowered. Now, I remember a day, honestly, when I was still a relatively young and immature Christian. And I don't remember what my thought in particular was, but I do remember hearing a voice that I mistook for the Lord's. It said to me, it doesn't matter so much your thought. As long as you don't actually say it or do it, it's okay. Well, that's not what the Bible says, I found out years later. That voice that day was either my flesh or Satan or both, but it was not Christ our Savior. He tells us several times that the heart does matter, and that it does matter because Jesus came to save us from our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. We, we make some progress if we stop speaking what's on our minds and hearts. And if we stop acting upon our evil thoughts, but it's not enough to be satisfied with that and stop there. We've got to have the Lord's power and continual prompting and nudging, and we have to obey and submit to and cooperate with both until all, as the scripture says, grumbling and disputing are done away with. If you're like me, I think you can already sense that this is a much bigger issue personally than we might have originally imagined. And it's no wonder the Lord tells us through Jeremiah, if you remember in chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So this word for grumble or murmur is a big deal. It's not to be taken lightly and it needs to be dealt with. Remember, the verse says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. James tells us our goal is to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
That's chapter 1, verse 4. And so God is not satisfied with a partial healing, physically, especially spiritually, or emotionally, or anything. God wants to do things perfectly and right, and he always does. But we have to, as I said before, cooperate with that. That's not a work. It's just something we have to either say yes to or no to. If we say yes to and we persevere and we endure, God will accomplish in us what he set out to accomplish. If not, it's not going to happen. Philippians 1, 6, and again in 2.13, but we're going to put them together, reassure us and encourage us with the following words. And I am sure of this, that he, meaning God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. For it is God, not us, who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But we must not resist the process. We have to let this sanctification take place. And in our allowing or permitting, we are not to give just passive consent and think that God's going to do all the work like he did in creation. Here, we have to submit. Here, we have to align ourselves with him. And here, we have to put these transformations into intentional and purposeful action. And it has to bear fruit. And we don't want diseased fruit from a diseased tree. We want good fruit or healthy fruit from a healthy tree. Amen? Now, let's talk about the word disputing. Because it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. is or seems quite obvious in that it takes at least two people to dialogue, to dialogue right? But, again, with this word, this isn't necessarily the case either. In the concordance, the definition says reasoning or calculating and thinking and deliberation and plotting. Another source says it's more of a back-and-forth kind of reasoning, meaning in our own minds. And you remember it's similar to what James was saying in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 8, when he says that um, he who doubts or reasons back and forth is trying to convince himself one way or the other is a double-minded man and that makes him unstable in all his ways this the reference continues explains that this kind of reasoning and this is important is self-based and therefore confused especially as it contributes to reinforcing ourselves, but also others, in discussion to remain in their initial prejudice, unquote. So it's self-based, and is enough reason to stay away from it right there. It's fleshly, and Paul reminds us in Romans 7.18 that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. It's confused, its meaning is unsure. You shouldn't be talking about anything unless you're settled in your knowledge and your understanding and your thinking. Not only will you remain confused if you don't, but you'll be confusing others. 
and that's not the goal. And the definition implies that in addition to our own faulty thinking, we will either confuse them, as we said, or we will actually contribute or reinforce others in their wrong thinking as well. So you will be solidifying them in their wrong prejudices. And we could read in Thayer's lexicon, and it keeps backing up these definitions of both grumbling and disputing. Some versions use the word grumbling and complaining, and these are just as correct. So we see that these terms are mostly inward, at least originally, and then in a very simplified sense, serve no good purpose. They profit us and others nothing, and they certainly don't shine our lights and magnify Christ. So they're fleshly, and that makes them ungodly, and that makes them demonic. And this is an extension and yet another example of what our Lord Jesus told me several years ago, and I shared with you recently on another podcast. In one sentence, he says, if you see the world doing it or going after it, stay away from it. So, if you hear the world grumbling and complaining, which, of course, they are going to do because they don't have God in them, then we are certainly not to do that. How are we going to be different from the world if we're doing the same thing they're doing? situation I am to be content. Now, in this the preceding verse... Paul's really kind of relating here um, to physical needs and things like that. But it, every bit is much important to include it. And has given us everything we need in order to accomplish that. So this verse is telling us that we've been given everything necessary in order, among more other things, to be content. When we grumble, when we dispute, when we complain, whether inwardly or outwardly, we're expressing our discontent. That's what it boils down to. This doesn't reflect godliness. It's our dissatisfaction with the way things are. We're fleshly. We're being ungrateful. We're rebellious. We're not exercising the fruit of the Spirit. All these things. Romans 8.6 speaks directly to this. If you remember, it says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life. And not only that, it's peace. We don't want death. We don't want to set our minds on the flesh. We want to be grateful. We don't want to grumble. We don't want to uh, dispute. We don't want to murmur. We don't want to complain. We want to be content. And this starts inwardly. Now let us be admonished and not quietly reminded do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? To what end? Verse 15 answers these questions. It says, That you may be, or so that you may be, blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom... You are, or supposed to be, shining as lights in the world. Blameless, it says. Innocent, without blemish. When we grumble and complain, brothers and sisters, we are anything but these things, right? Yes. Now this has significant ramifications for our true Christian walks. It affects our witness, 
our relationship to the Father, our holiness, our sanctification, our preparedness and readiness toward a right and proper response to all kinds and levels and degrees of persecution, our examples to others in the body of Christ, our personal Christian maturity, our obedience and love to our Redeemer, our peace and joy, so much and more. Now, whether we grumble and dispute with others directly or about others indirectly or situations, we can't live out the command in Hebrews 12:14, which says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We can't live out the two greatest commandments in Matthew 22, 37 through, 20, through 39. Remember it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. And then Jesus says, and the second one is, is like the first one, and love your neighbor as yourself. Just like our Lord Jesus noted that we would always have the poor with us, if you remember him saying that. And he wasn't being indifferent. He was just, in that context, he was just trying to instruct the disciples to focus more on him while he was with them, because he wouldn't always be with them. But just that means a full assurance, and it's talking about eternal life. He reminds us that this world is not our home. He tells us not to store up treasures for ourselves on earth, but to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. He says not to trust in man, but in God. He tells us not to worry about what we will eat or what we will drink or what we will wear, but to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and these other things will be given to us. Now, in speaking in line with this, Paul both encourages and charges or commands us, saying this in Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, your life, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Okay, so what is he saying? He's saying whenever you grumble, dispute, complain, murmur it's all coming from inside whether it goes out in speech or action matters but not as much because even if you whitewash yourself on the outside by looking good by shutting your mouth and by biting your tongue and those kinds of things you're still grumbling on the inside whether it be resentment or dissatisfaction or envy or covetousness or jealousy or any of those things that that, that are the motives of the heart those things produce grumbling and complaining. And God is saying, no, I've given you everything that you need to be content in this life and to be godly in this life. So if you're grumbling and complaining, whether it's on the outside and affecting others and letting it affect your walk and making it look like you're putting a, a, a basket over your light instead of shining it light brightly around other people, 
you're looking more like the world than you are like me, and that's not supposed to happen. And I speak to myself as well, because God's speaking to me. So Paul is saying, if you find yourself in that place, be reminded of the scripture. Don't grumble and complain. Because when you do that, that remember what we said, God enlightened me and told me, and I'm telling you that it means when you're grumbling and complaining, that's, a, that's an indicator, like a turn signal or an alarm, letting you know that there are things you are dissatisfied with, either in the kingdom or in the world or with your flesh or all of them. Or some combination thereof. So, when we grumble and complain, we've got to realize that we've got a dissatisfaction with something going on. And Paul tells us God's allowed him and showed him and taught him, because he says, I've learned how, to be content in every situation that I'm in. No matter what I want, no matter what I don't want, whether it's my spirit, whether it's my flesh, whatever, I've learned to be content. So I need to be satisfied because God has given me everything for life and godliness. And if I don't, I'm complaining. That means I'm dissatisfied with something. I'm discontented with something. So Paul says, what do you do about that? Okay, well, he says, the only time that you're going to be discontent is when you're looking at the earthly things around you, your situations, your relationships. So he says, you have been raised with Christ, so th seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He says, set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth. Now, I've shared with you before that the Holy Spirit dealt with me for an extended season concerning doubt, anxiety, fear, worry, all of those things. First, he made me aware of it in such a way that I couldn't deny it. Second, he lovingly, patiently, repeatedly whispered clearly in my ear, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Now leading up to this season, unbeknownst to me, he had been preparing me, sanctifying me, readying me, all these things to not only accept this truth, but to be willing and gladly and needfully submitting to him, obeying him and cooperating with him in this area. And it worked. I'm not all there, but his work is, his work in, in cultivating my heart and my mind according to his truth, not mine, his desire, not mine, his will, not mine, has been very fruitful. And that CD planted in me was not trampled on or snatched up, but it took lasting root, praise God. And I'm so grateful for that. And I still hear that from time to time. And it helps me spiritually, but it also helps me naturally. Remember, I'm not in the world. I'm Excuse me, I'm in the world, but I'm not of it. But as long as I'm in it, I'm to shine as a light in that world amongst a crooked and twisted generation which we find ourselves living, no doubt, right now, maybe more often than any other time in our lifetimes. Uh, many can attest to that. Even unbelievers can attest to the screwed-upness of the world. Of the world. Um, but I know, that I know that this is it pleases him. And in the same way, I know, and I can perceive, and I even look forward to him doing his work upon me and in me in this important area of grumbling and disputing or complaining or murmuring. Remember, the very definitions of these words directly implicate that these actions are 
inward. They're in secret. They originate in our hearts. And whether they ever make it out in speech or action doesn't change their existence and the need for their cleansing and expulsion from our lives. Now, multiple times earlier, and I used this purposely because this is the Holy Spirit's word to me. It just stuck with me. I used the word cooperate many times up till now because that's the word he used and continues to use with me. And it's just and it's right and it's proper and it's fitting. You remember how or you know how in Ephesians 2, 8 it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Do you remember that scripture? I'm sure you've heard it many times. And But if you're not a believer or you're not familiar with it, that's okay. Hear it now. It says our faith, okay, our salvation is by grace, meaning we can't earn it or deserve it or do anything to accomplish it in our lives. God's grace has saved us through faith. So it's by God's grace through our faith in that. The Lord makes it happen, not us, by his grace. But we have to cooperate with this act in order to make it happen, in order to consummate it or complete it or make the transaction perfect. What transaction? Well, God giving us the grace to do it and our saying, yes, okay, and abiding in it and doing it. And this isn't a work or a deed or anything like that on our part. So if you have a, a, a Calvinistic bent in you, please don't let that get in the way of what I'm saying. This is not a work or a deed. Now, do we have to do something? Yes. But the word in the Greek, if you look it up in, in that phrase, that you do a work or a labor, it, it, the work or a deed is not, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, is not talking about um, something like aligning ourselves with the Spirit or submitting to God or obeying God or cooperating with God. It's talking about labor, something you go out and do physically. That's what he's saying. He's saying that the thrust of that verse is that we cannot do anything to warrant our salvation, to earn it, to deserve it, to obtain it. But God makes it possible through Jesus Christ, but how many people still don't get saved? Okay, so when he says we must, it's by grace, but through faith, something is required on our part. It's not a work or a deed or a labor or anything like that. It's not something we get a reward for or we get wages for. It's a cooperation with, a submitting to, uh, an, an, an obedience to. So that's the transaction. God gives us the grace. Jesus does the work by grace. We submit ourselves to that, and that's what completes the transaction. So it's not something we labor for. It's not our wages. It's something. It's not something we. It is something we have to do in terms of seeing it to fruition in our lives. But if we refuse, reject, or rebel, it won't happen, even though his love and grace and power make it available. But it will happen and be perfect and complete as we continually, gratefully, and intentionally cooperate, not fight against, with what he wants to accomplish. Remember Saul, before he became Paul, or after when he was referring back to when he was unsaved, when he was called Saul, 
he said something here that says, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the churches, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. However, on the road to Damascus, Jesus spoke to him and said, It's hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, Paul was trying to say, when I was an unbeliever, I considered myself righteous because of this and this and this and this and this, but it got me nowhere. So he was trying to say, I'm not saved by my own works. But then when Jesus met him just before he became a believer and shortly thereafter was called Paul, he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, and for our purposes today, Jesus is saying, you are going against the grain. You're working against me and my purposes. You are not cooperating with me. Now, I've made the way possible, not you, but you have to submit and obey and cooperate. This is your portion, okay? Then it will happen. So it's not a work, it's not a deed, it's not something you earn, but it's something that's got to be done on your part to make what he's already done happen in your life. Not only do we need to let the Lord have his way in us for molding us and shaping us and sometimes even breaking us for his plans and purposes to put our flesh to death practically and to make us Christ-like and that is enough. That's reason alone, brothers and sisters. But we need to let or allow this to happen because of the why. What is the why? That we are so that we may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you are to shine as lights in the world. And this is a perfect time to insert this word that the Spirit gave me while I was recently at work. I was literally right in the middle of doing my job, something I do for work virtually every day, and I needed to do. But I stopped right where I was, physically, from what I was doing, to type it into my phone so I wouldn't lose it, because the Lord and experience both have taught me about that. So I thought at the time it was going to be a standalone separate message, but it's fitting to conjoin its short but powerful content here. The theme Jesus said, the Spirit said to me was, don't the Gentiles do the same? And I desperately hope that you can see the relevance scripturally and practically in order to live it out. Okay, he began immediately with these words to these chapter and verse references. He just gave me the words. I looked up the references later. Several of them are Matthew chapter 5. And uh, a couple others are in First Peter. But he was trying to get my, my mind, my frame of mind, my, my thinking, my his perspective in me towards this matter. And all he said was this. He didn't even finish the whole entire scripture. He just said in the first one, he said, but I say to you, in other words, he's trying to give me the frame of mind very quickly to say, not this, but this, 
look at it not that way, but this way. Don't do that anymore, but do this. And then he said, don't even the Gentiles don't do the same thing? In other words, don't do what they do, because otherwise you're going to be just like them. But I've called you out of the world, and you're ambassadors for me and my representatives, so you're not supposed to be like them. So don't do do. Then he said, pray for your enemies. Remember, that was all about don't hurt them, don't repay evil for evil. Pray for your enemies. It said, do not repay evil for evil. Literally, the next verse he told me. And then there's a verse he said, too, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And I remember that, too, from reading it before. God's trying to say in later in First Peter, he's saying, he's, he's using that phrase because it fits in with all the others. He's trying to say, not this, but that. Stop doing this, start doing this. Don't live like the world, live like a kingdom man or woman. Don't, even though you're in the world every day and they tend to rub off an awful lot you can't let that happen now, how do you do that you stay in the word you stay in the word you abide in me abide in my word i will abide in you just like the the he says the the branches need the vine you can't do anything apart from the vine stay in the vine stay in the word stay in the bible and this this is a gracious thing in the sight of god he was saying um that when you work for somebody or you are a, a servant or an employee or a literal servant or a slave or anything like that you, you you know you have someone else to answer to is what it means when they treat you well and you treat them well in return that's good but how is that good even the gentiles do the same thing but he says but when they treat you badly or revile you or whatever even if it's unjustly, and especially if it's for my sake, I think it says, he says, don't respond the same way that the world does. Because it's when you don't, it will be a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then the last one, he said, go with him two miles. You remember when he said, when he slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek also. Don't punch him back. When he said, uh, Give him one, if he takes your tunic, give him the other tunic as well. If he asks you to go with him one mile, servicing him or carrying something, offer to go with him two miles. In other words, you're going to get people's attention when you do virtually a lot more or just the opposite than what the world would do. Your response is very different than what most people are. And that's going to quiet some people. It might enrage some other people because inwardly they're, they're bent on being upset and uh, mean and rude and all that. Um, but that's how you're supposed to respond. Because the world knows that if they've been taught through experience in their own hearts, the hardness of their hearts, I might add, that if you do this, this is what you're going to expect in response. And so when we don't respond the way they respond, that's God, that's going to be something they have to take note of, even if they don't like it at first. And it's going to be convicting, too, and that's why they're not going to like it. So people don't like hanging around you sometimes if you're living rightly and not treating others the way they deserve to be treated. That's grace. Okay, It's going to catch someone's attention. Sometimes it's going to be a wonderful thing. Sometimes it's going to lead somebody to Christ. Sometimes it's going to enrage other people because it's a conviction of their own sin and they just don't want to change it. And anyway, we're getting off target here. I am. I'm sorry. But 
All these things and more are literal. These are commands, they are not suggestions, as if we could choose to do them or not to do them, okay? But the crux or the heart of the matter is this, and we miss this. We're given the Great Commission, right? That's Matthew 28, 19 through 20. And if we obey this, which we should, <laughs> but not just to love and therefore obey Jesus. Now, wait a minute. Are we supposed to do that? Absolutely. Should we want to do that? Should that be a supernatural response of a, of a, of a submitted heart? Yes, it should. I didn't say don't do it. I said not just to do that. So if we obey the, the, the Great Commission, okay, it shouldn't be just to love and therefore obey Jesus. It should be because his love, his agape love, his perfect selfless, selfless love is in our hearts because he dwells in us. And because of this, we should want to do them for our lost friends and our family and our co-workers and strangers and enemies, etc. And so when they see us say or do these things that they would never say or do, or we respond in a way that they would never see coming, okay, this strikes a chord. This catches their attention. This silences our enemies. This makes them scratch their heads in wonder, like, what's, why did they do that? Okay, this also softens their hearts. This, as we said, convicts them of their sin, convicts their souls. This reflects Jesus Christ, and this glorifies our Almighty Father. Hallelujah! So this is a must friends and brothers and sisters. This has to be our heart's desire. This should be our ongoing prayer. And we know that this is at the heart of God, so we know He will answer these types of prayers. Also know, also know up front, that along with these requests, these prayers before God, to answer our our, our our prayer to, to our supplications to not grumble and complain and murmur and all that stuff. Okay, know that along with these requests will necessarily come difficult and trying opportunities to actually show the love and grace of Jesus. Okay, that, that means that situations and people and matters will have to arise in our lives in order to live out that command and live out the love of Jesus. Okay, so what I'm, what I'm saying is if God wants to change us in an area, then he's going to teach us and whisper in our ear persistently and lovingly and kindly, loudly and clearly, and he's not going to let us take the test once, we pass and fail. And even if we pass it the first time, it's got to be part of our Christian character. So it's going to go on and on and on, okay? But he's saying that you, in order to live these things out, then you've got to go through 
those situations. If you don't go through the situations, you'll never, never have an opportunity to live them out. And I want you to have them as part of your Christian character and your Christ-likeness and your sanctification. So don't be surprised when these negative things come because I want you to respond to negative things in this way. So if the negative things don't come, you'll never have a chance to respond this way. So don't be surprised at that is all I'm saying. I'm giving you a heads up. Okay, it's, it's natural. It's going to happen. It's got to happen. And if you're like me, you don't want to and won't likely pass such tests the first time around. So you'll have more opportunities than you probably want to submit and obey and get it right until you do. And then it won't stop there. Why? Because we just mentioned, because it's supposed to be a part of the sanctification process, and that's ongoing, and it's a mark of our Christian character and our Christ-likeness. So we can't, in response to this, act like we'll get around to it later, or one day, or next week, or maybe when I'm further along on my walk or something like that. No, we don't want an excuse, okay? The Holy Spirit's going to prompt us to do it, and we need to say yes in our hearts to that. Remember in the word where it says, now is the day of salvation? Speaking to the unbeliever, do you remember that? So he's saying to us, his disciples, concerning this subject, now is the day of grace that you're supposed to show to those who don't deserve it. Okay, this is exactly what grace means, okay? It looks what it looks like practically. And it's got to be mirrored from us to those around us, just as it was mirrored from Christ to us. Okay, this is our only proper Christian response to ridicule or mocking or reviling and slander and scoffing and mocking and all other ways of smaller persecution, let alone bigger ones. Romans 12, 19 through 20 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, for it is written, if your uh, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, it says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And Jesus from the cross and Stephen, as he was succumbing to his stoning, they both said, what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. That God is judge, among other things. Based on the evidence of our sinful hearts and lives, he would be perfectly just to sentence us to eternal death, which is hell. Based solely on the evidence of our lives and our hearts. But, because God is also love, he has decided to show us mercy in the form of forgiveness. If he who is pure and holy and righteous puts love above justice but not in place of it then how can we men who are evil by nature do any less Jesus told us frankly that if we do not forgive those who wrong us God will not forgive us who wronged him remember that 1 Corinthians 13:13 13, 13 ends by saying so now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But 
the greatest of these is love. Scripture says God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, meaning it's not his purpose. God is patient towards us, Scripture says, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, which leads to eternal life. So grumbling and murmuring and disputing and complaining will not accomplish the purposes of God. We've got to put these things to death, brothers and sisters. His power and his love will and are needed to help us do that. Okay, It's not on us just to do it by our, ourselves. That's impossible. But his love and power are needed and his will is needed, but they're also available. That's part of that life and godliness, everything we, that God gave us to get through this Christian life. Okay, we've got to ask so that we can receive, so long as it aligns with his will. And if you know the Father at all, you know that this is his will for us in and through Christ Jesus. We most certainly need this to be eradicated from our hearts and minds as we see his coming approaching and to fulfill the Great Commission. Oh, God bless you. That feels good to have a good, solid dose of truth. Holy Spirit, please help us to not only f remember your words, but to cooperate with your nudging and prompting in our lives. We ask for your power and your love and your will to help us not only cooperate and submit to obey you, but to live it out so that we can be lights in the world among a crooked and twisted generation. Amen.